Well, we're going to start a new series last week, uh, or the last couple of weeks, Pastor Jay did a series called Hearing God, uh, did an amazing job unpacking that for us, and, uh, and now we're going to start a series that's going to lead into the Easter season, and uh, the title of it is, Who is This King? And the theme verses for this series come from Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, uh, it says, on his robe and, and his thigh, on, and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 1 Timothy 6.15 says, which, uh, which God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. For some people, it might be a little bit difficult to relate to Jesus as King. Uh, primarily for us here in the United States, we don't have a whole lot of concept of what a monarchy looks like, what this kind, the, the kind of authoritarian rule that kingship holds to. In fact, that's kind of why uh, we left, <laughs> right? We, we got out of England because we didn't like that kind of rulership, and, and we thought that we could do it better, and, and so we ventured out and and we don't live in that kind of kingship anymore. Uh, the people of Israel were kind of the opposite of us. The, the people of Israel, they looked to the whole world that, that had kings, and they said, they said, we want a king. We don't have a king. We want an earthly king like everybody else has. It's the flip. I, you know, obviously, if, if they knew now what we know they probably wouldn't request that. But let me give you the context for this request. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And this is Samuel who, um, when we do baby dedication, we talk about uh, Samuel being dedicated unto the Lord. We talk about Samuel living in the temple and, uh, and hearing God. Pastor Jay talked about this in his Hearing God series that uh, sometimes we don't recognize the voice of God, and in Samuel's case, he didn't at that time recognize it, and, uh, and the priest had to help him understand, no, that's God speaking to you. And, and so here he is now later in life, much later in life, and it says, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba which sounds like the name of a cool tavern, maybe. I don't know. Um, it's spelled that way. Uh, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, you are old. And just as a a point of reference here, anytime you're speaking to elderly people, maybe the words you are old are not the first words out of your mouth. Uh, as someone who is feeling older, as my, uh, my middle child is getting ready to go off to college and my son's grown now, it's like, yeah, I don't really want somebody to say, hey, you're old. My kids tell me I'm old. I don't need other people telling me that. You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king 
to lead us such as all the other nations have. All the other nations have kings. Like, we want a king. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. He didn't like it. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord tells him. And I love how the Lord just puts him at ease here. He says, listen to all that the people are saying to you. And he just takes the pressure off. He says, it's not you that they've rejected. It's not you, Samuel. No, instead, they have rejected me, God, as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. For the people of Israel, they had God as their king, but it wasn't enough for them wasn't enough. They wanted someone that they could see, someone they could bow to, someone who would go into battle with them and, and worship them. They wanted a human earthly king. The problem with a human earthly king is they have human earthly character. With that, you get the character of human beings. You get the sinful nature of human beings. And it comes with earthly rule. History has no shortage of bad kings and rulers, right? This is pretty obvious, but we're going to go through some of them. There's no shortage. In fact, you could fill a list just with Roman emperors. I mean, those guys were, they were messed up. But there's also been rulers that have been homicidal, like Nero and Genghis Khan. Some who are incompetent, like Edward II, or untrustworthy, like Charles I, or amiable but inadequate, like Louis XVI, or Tsar Nicholas II. You guys know all of these, right? Obviously. Some rulers were limited in their capacity to do serious harm. The self-absorbed Edward VIII, you, you know that guy. By his abdication, the narcissistic prince, regent, and king, George IV, by the constitutional limits on his power. And then there was, of course, the mass murderer and self-proclaimed emperor, Jean Bedel Bocasa. I practiced that all week. A little acknowledgement of that would be nice. Of the Central African Empire, he would have made this list of bad leaders, but his imperial status was not actually internationally recognized. So we could look throughout history and we, we realize that there are just these terrible leaders. But then we want to be like, yeah, but we got the biblical leaders. Those guys were good guys. So let's take a look at these guys. You find King Rehoboam, who he might be Solomon's son, but he totally mishandles the rebellion in Israel with this heavy-handed rule. And the ten tribes of Israel scatter. They break off. And, and he's never successfully, he never successfully gets them back into the fold. The scripture says in Chronicles, in chapter 12, verse 14, he did evil for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. And I think what you're going to hear as I go through these kings, a running theme. King Jeroboam, when this king takes over the throne, he kills his brothers to eliminate any competition. We know that in monarchies, in kingship, it's run through the bloodlines, that it's familial, family and heirs take over that. So King Je Je Jehoram, he just did what any normal person would do, eliminate the competition. 
He kills his brothers. And even though he gets a warning letter from the prophet Elijah himself, Jeroboam ignores God at every turn. And I'm not saying that this is going to happen to you if you ignore God at every turn. I'm just telling you what Scripture tells us about what happened to King Jeroboam when he did. It says in chapter 21, verse 18, you can read it, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. And they didn't have colonoscopies back then. He didn't know what was going on. And if that sounds painful, it's because it totally was. His bowels eventually fall out. And that's it for him. How's your coffee hitting you this morning? <laughs> right? That's terrible and gross. King Ahaziah, this king did all kinds of bad stuff under the influence of his idol-worshiping mother. God isn't too amused when he helps out those bad rulers in Israel either. And so what happens is he was captured while hiding in Samaria, put to death. Queen Athaliah, she's the only monarch in Judah who's not descended from David's house. Things do not go well for her. After her son is killed, Athaliah sees a chance to destroy all the royal family of the house of Judah, which means she had her grandchildren killed. That's crazy. That's psychotic. Right? She, like, I understand, like, some of these other ones killed their, you know, brothers and kids. But your grandchildren? Come on. That's not what grandparents are supposed to do. Not only is she a worshiper of Baal, she's just a terrible person. Eventually, her own people rise up against her in a coup and execute her in the streets, which, honestly, she should have seen coming. If you killed your grandchildren, you know people are not going to like that. King Amaziah, not the great or amazing Amaziah, he hires soldiers from Israel, and even though he doesn't take them into battle, he turns to the aid of other non-Yahweh, non-God deities. When he finds out that God is determined to destroy him, he flees to Jerusalem, he's hunted down, he's killed. You see the theme here. King Ahaz worships other gods, pays the price for it when he's defeated in battle after battle. Worst of the worst with idol worship, Sacrifices his own sons in fire and destroys religious objects in the temple. Just another real psychopath. King Ammon, he isn't sufficiently humble and he also loves idols. Eventually his servants conspired against him and killed him. Jehoaz, he only reigns for three months. Kind of a fail there uh, because the king of Egypt deposed him. Jehoiakim. Did, Scripture says, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he got whisked away to exile in Babylon. Uh, it goes on and on and on. So that song that says, it's good to be king, I don't think it's true. There's another acclaimed song, uh, I Just Can't Wait to Be King, uh, by the famous Lion King. Um, also, not so much. These guys have a lot in common. And their number one offense was worshiping other gods. Their number one offense was, was doing evil in God's eyes. And, 
and ultimately self-ruling and not putting their dependence upon Almighty God. For that reason, these guys were met with some pretty difficult circumstances like your bowels coming out of you. Either that or people just killed them and people didn't even honor them, honestly, as kings, as rulers. Not all the kings were bad, of course, but all the kings were human. And all the kings made human mistakes. Even King David, this is one that's always been a challenge, I think, for some of us. We like King David. We relate to King David to some extent. And, and honestly, we relate to the fact that he was imperfect, and yet God still says he was a man after his own heart. Right? And I think that for us is, is hopeful because as, as a human, we recognize our weaknesses, we recognize that we are imperfect people, and yet there can still be this desire and this pursuit of God in our life. See, but David made mistakes. He, he saw another man's wife and, and took her as his own and then had her husband killed out on the battlefield. I mean, that's a pretty terrible thing to do. And yet here was someone who was a man after God's own heart. So even in those people who, and there's repentance and there's uh, forgiveness and all of that, there's still the humanity that comes with the leadership and the rule that's taking place. And so God in his grace sends his son to establish a kingdom like none other. I don't believe a lot has changed throughout history. I think we've, we've advanced in our understanding and knowledge and we can learn from the past. But I do think that even today, in our current cultural context, we look to our leaders to help us, to fix things, to make my life better. And it's just simply a disappointment. It's the same disappointment today as it was for the Israelites. And so God in his grace, he sends his son to establish this new kingdom. And if you've ever been at a Christmas service, you might have heard these next verses. Isaiah 9, a prophetic word given to the people of Israel in verse 6 or 7. It says, for to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over, and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is the prophetic picture of Jesus being born, being born into this world and being the new king to establish a new kingdom. Jesus comes along and for the first 30 years of his life, he lays pretty low, right? He, he doesn't draw a lot of attention to himself. At age 30, he begins his ministry with baptism and, and with the uh, miracle in Cana of Galilee where he turns the water into wine. That is the beginning stages of his ministry. 
of his established ministry. And all of a sudden, people who are around him and that encounter Jesus start recognizing that maybe there's something more to this man than just a rabbi, than just a teacher. In Matthew chapter 16, as word starts to spread from all of the people that have encountered Jesus, rumors are starting to to pop up about who Jesus is. And trying to figure out what, what is he all about And so Jesus addresses his disciples in verse 13 of chapter 16. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some some people are saying that you're like John the Baptist, which clearly he wasn't because John the Baptist was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one who baptized Jesus. Some others say that you're Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and he said, but what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, he says, you're the Messiah. And the literal definition there of Messiah means anointed. It's anointed, it's the expected king of the Davidic line who would deliver Israel from foreign oppression and foreign leaders and bondage and restore them to the glories of its golden age. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied to Peter, he said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, the only way you could know that I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only way that you could know that I'm the Messiah, the anointed one, is through the Father. But even the disciples, recognizing who Jesus is, they had their moments of disbelief. They had these moments where things would take place and and they would have these encounters where they're like, I I just don't get it. You remember the story where uh, Jesus is in the boat with the disciples and they're on the Sea of Galilee and there's a huge storm that comes up and the disciples are freaking out about this and Jesus is asleep. And so they wake Jesus up and and they're like, Jesus, like we're freaking out here. You got to help us out. And so Jesus just gets up And he speaks to the storm and he calms it. And this is their response in Mark chapter 4 verse 41. It says, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? See, up to this point, it's like, okay, you're the, you're the Messiah. You're the new king. We're gonna, you're the, our human earthly king that we've been waiting for, the one that's going to deliver us. And now all of a sudden, he's speaking to the, the wind and the waves, and he's calming them. And they're like, who is this guy? And that's really the question that we want to answer in this series. Who is this king? Because this king makes a difference. This king is unlike any other earthly king. This king changes everything. My hope for us in this series as we lead into Easter is first, I want us 
really to see and savor and dwell and understand Jesus like we've never seen before. And that seems like a, a bit of a lofty ask, a, a bit of a big ask of all of us, but, but I think it's possible that whether you are new to being a Christ follower or you've been a Christ follower your entire life, that there, there is more of who God wants to reveal himself to you in. And that there's a closeness that you can experience that's maybe more than ever before. If you and I as, as people don't fully grasp and understand Jesus is king, if we don't understand the authority and the lordship and if we don't fully grasp the reverence and the understanding of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, it will be very, very difficult for us to communicate and share with those around us. If we're not worshiping him as king, that when we gather together and we have the opportunity to worship or whether we're online, if we're not worshiping him as king, then we're just singing songs. We're just singing songs. And we can sing songs anywhere. But we worship him as king. The second thing I hope for us to gain out of this is to really revel in the same things he did. To begin operating in the ways that Jesus operated. If we, if we look at the life of Jesus and we see the things that he said and and the things that he taught, and the way that he treated people. I believe that we can learn from that. I believe we can begin operating in those things. I think we can say some of the same things that Jesus said and teach the same things Jesus taught and treat people in a, in a loving way and in a gracious way in the way that Jesus saw and treated people. We can be ambassadors for our King. And as we get to the cross on Good Friday, we will see that the cross was actually the only fitting death for this king. So who is this king? And maybe before we answer that, as we will over the next couple of weeks, maybe this morning we just recognize who he's not. This king is not a part-time king. And I think you probably know what I mean by that. I, I don't mean this with any sort of condemnation or guilt. But I think that there are moments where certainly people who um, maybe just come and honor the king during Christmas and Easter uh, find themselves, uh, find that a bit inadequate in really recognizing him as king. I think it's easy for us at times when we're going through difficult circumstances to acknowledge him as king in hopes that he will fix our situation. But when we get through that difficult season to go back to our self-rulership and to begin operating our lives according to how we would rule this kingdom, 
He's not a part-time king. He's a full-time king. He doesn't come out and speak just during holidays. And he doesn't speak just to his subjects to appease them and keep them happy. He's speaking to us, as we learned the last couple of weeks, all the time. He also is not an earthly king. Earthly kings, as we've noted, were anything but perfect. Earthly kings are hungry for power. They're hungry for wealth. They're hungry to build up their kingdoms, to expand their territory. And in the case of Jesus, Jesus showed up to this earth and displayed a level of humility, a level of compassion and care towards people that it caused many of the big players of that time to completely reject any notion that he even could be king. See, he showed us something different than what most kings do. He came to this earth not to be served, but to serve others. He is not an earthly king. And finally, he is not a traditional king. Royalty had and has things in place, rules in how to deal with common people as well as for common people to deal with them. Um, I've never met the Queen of England. Uh, I know that probably comes as a shock to some of you, but uh, I've never met the Queen. I, I don't fully understand all of the rules, but I know enough to know that if you get an invitation, I, I believe the term is an audience of the queen, uh, there are some specific things that people are going to tell you in how you handle your audience, how you handle coming before the queen. I don't know what those things are because I've never met the queen, but, but I imagine there's quite a few things that you can do and Quite a few, actually, there's probably a few things you can do and quite a few things you can't do. Right? There's probably not a big bear hug that's going to take place with the queen when you go to meet her. Right? I mean, you probably break her at this age, but it, it just, it's not going to happen. There's these rules that are in place for, for the, the leader and the common people. Uh, you've got the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church. I happen to know, again, in this case, if you get an audience with the Pope, if you get an invitation to meet the Pope, there are some things that, that you can do, and there are a lot of things that you can't do. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not unlike what you guys experience with me. There, there's some things that you can do, and there's some, No, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, isn't it? That, that we would... Treat people in such a way that, that, that they're holy, that they're above everyone else. And it's the complete opposite of what Jesus did. He wasn't a traditional king. He didn't have these rules in place. In fact, Jesus broke any of the cultural rules that existed. He just fought right through them. The people of Israel had something very specific in mind that was based upon this preconceived idea of what a king should be like and what a king should do and shouldn't do. And Jesus came to this earth and completely broke the mold of that. 
He was different. Colossians chapter 1 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to establish an upside-down kingdom. That when the world says this is what a kingdom should look like, this is what a king should respond and act like, Jesus came and said, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be about redemption. I'm going to be about the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to be about the compassion and grace for those who I shouldn't even be in conversation with. So let me just ask you a question, though, as we go into this series How many of you would say, I just want to be used by God? Anybody say that, like just in your prayer time, you say, I just just want to be used by God. And there's some that maybe you just genuinely be like, "Ah, that terrifies me. I don't even know what that means. But if you've been a Christian for too long, you've probably prayed that prayer. I just want to be used by God. Let me ask you a follow-up question to that. How many of you would say, I want to be used by my spouse? No? No one? It's weird. How many of you would say, I want to be used by my employer? Or I want to be used, this is the worst, I want to be used by my government. I just want my government to use me. No, that that language changes, doesn't it? And I understand what we're saying when we say, I want to be used by God, but I, I want to begin to change our vocabulary in such a way because when a king uses its subjects, it uses them and sees them as tools to build their kingdom, not as people. Our God does not see us as tools. To build his kingdom, he sees us as people that he wants to know and he wants to love. The kingdom that Jesus came to establish was anything but traditional. The kingdom that Jesus came to establish wasn't about using his subjects, it was about loving them and teaching them of a new kingdom that could take place, one of grace and forgiveness one of mercy. So over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. We're going to look at the the ways in which this king treated people, talked to people, the truths that he instilled in establishing a kingdom that would be so different than any other earthly kingdom that we know. We're going to answer the question, who is this king? One of the reasons it was difficult for the people of Israel to accept Jesus as king because they wanted things to look like every other nation's king. They wanted it to look like the rest of the world. They had a king in God But it wasn't enough. They wanted things, they wanted to be accepted by the world. They wanted the rest, they wanted to look like everyone else. They wanted to operate like everyone else. And I would argue that the church is no different. That there are times that 
the church tries to do the same things as the world. We try to fit in. We try to make decisions or operate in the, in the good business practices of the world. And, and sometimes we get that a little bit cloudy. We get it mixed up in that there is the organization of the church and then there is the, uh, the celebration of, of God's body, the, the bride of Christ. And sometimes at the church level, at the organizational church level, we try to do things that are, are like how the world would do it. But I just want to remind you that we are not of the world. We don't operate the same way that the world operates. We are the bride of Christ. We are his church. We do things differently. We operate in a different paradigm under a different authority and a different kingdom. We do things the way that Christ would have us do them. I, I mention that because I think that there are times in which uh, the church does a disservice in treating, uh, let me rephrase that. The organization, the leadership of the church can do a disservice by by not expecting that the bride of Christ be the body of Christ and be in unity with one another. And so instead what happens is because we at times make financial decisions that seem like they are business decisions, we operate and we make decisions that are seemingly worldly, which makes what I'm about to tell you a little bit of a difficult transition. Because what I hope to do is to change that. Not that I, in and of myself, are going to be able to uh, completely change everyone's perspective on what the church uh, does or how people view the church or perspective of, of how the church could do things or not do things. But my hope and what I'm about to share with you is that what you will experience is not how the world would do something, but how the bride of Christ would do it. I want to share with you an announcement that was made last Sunday night uh, at our Next Gen uh, group. Um, Pastor Paul and Alicia and Kelly and I uh, met with uh, our Next Gen leadership and students along with some parents that were there. And we announced that uh, I have released Paul from our LifeHouse staff. And I realized that, um, that that might come as a shock to some. Uh, I recognize that that announcement seems a little bit curt and abrupt. Um, uh, to be honest with you, I, I shed a lot of tears in first service and... Um, and I've cried a lot over the past three months over this decision. Um, but it's the right decision. Over the past three months, uh, the four of us, Kelly, uh, myself, Alicia, and Paul, have, uh, have met um, at different times. And, and really in uh, discussing and addressing some uh, pretty specific things uh, that I believe is holding Paul back in his ministry. And these things are in regard to uh, behaviors 
personality things that, um, that have been a struggle because I, I need you to know that uh, our families, the Godens and the Coffees, have been friends for 25 years. We went to college together. We love each other. Um, we've done ministry off and on over 21 of those 25 years. And uh, in the last 14 years, we have, we have done it more intentionally uh, while here in San Antonio. And then in the last four years, uh, we've invited Paul and Alicia to come back and to uh, be in a more full-time ministry role. We love that family. And we still love that family. But over the course of the last 14 years, there's been some, some things that, as a friend, there's a scripture that says, uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It doesn't mean that those wounds don't hurt. But it does mean that when you love somebody enough, you address blind spots. You, you deal with the hard work. And over the, over the course of the last 14 years, there's, there's been some of those things that, that we've addressed, that Paul and I have addressed together, and they would subside for a little while and pop back up. And, and we just came to the conclusion that uh, as much as I wanted to be that friend that would help him through some of these things, uh, we recognize that that could not be me. You need to know that there are a lot of really good attributes. There are a lot of strengths that Paul has. There are. We all have strengths and weaknesses. There are a lot of really good strengths. It's why we invited him to come back. We, we, we know that there's some intentionality and some things that he does really, really well. And we had thought and planned that this would be a long-term thing. But unfortunately, it's not. I want to be very clear about what I'm talking about because this is where churches get this wrong. We are not talking about a moral misconduct or moral failure. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about specifically the way in which conflict is handled, how feedback is received. These are character and behavioral things that just keep popping up in his life. Things that maybe on the surface don't really seem like that big of a deal, but they're contradictory to our values and standards for how we pastor people here at LifeHouse. When it comes to these kinds of transitions, churches, as I said, often get it wrong. And I may not be as specific as I have been with our staff, but I'm being more specific than probably what you've heard in most churches. And the reason why I'm, I'm sharing with you the candid nature is, first of all, I have Paul's permission to do that. But secondly, because I think it's important for you to know that these kinds of things can be done in a healthy, life-giving way. Because if you've been in the church, you've seen these things go bad, 
or even worse, go really bad and cause hurt and division and pain that's long-lasting. I don't believe it has to be that way. And maybe I'm naive in this. Uh, so far, it's, 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 it's going well. I mean, as well as it can. But I believe that we can bring correction and address things in each other's life and still be loving and honoring at the same time. What normally happens when churches make these kinds of announcements with vague details and pithy statements that say things like, well, we just don't see eye to eye anymore. Or, well, they're just in a new season. Or, well, I mean, it's lies. It's li- those are lies. And if you've ever heard that in a church, they lied to you. And that's not okay. That's what the world would do. That's not what we would do as a part of his kingdom. We're not sweeping away the uncomfortability or uncomfortableness of this. Paul and Alicia are not here this morning. Uh, Paul watched in uh, online for service and sent me a text. And nothing I'm telling you are things that they don't know that I'm saying, but the nature of the timing of all of this made it really difficult. And although Paul and Alicia and Kelly and I were together on last Sunday night to make the announcement to the students, they couldn't be here this weekend. And this is why. Because we care enough about them as a couple and them as a family to participate and um, support them in the next steps. And so they're in Chicago this weekend, and they are uh, participating starting tomorrow in a program that's a counseling program that's specifically designed to help uproot some of these behaviors and character things that, that I've addressed in Paul's life. We had hoped that would be done here on staff uh, through the counsel of others. It became evident that that would not be in the best interest of Paul or the Godin family or of Lifehouse. And so that's why I've released him. I wish that you could have experienced what the Next Gen team experienced on Sunday night. Unfortunately, it's just not how things ended up. I can tell you that as uncomfortable and difficult as it is to uh, address these things in any sort of public format, Paul would tell you that he understands and knows the candid nature of needing to be forthright and honest because here's what we don't want. Rumors, conjecture, assumptions. That's not good for anyone. And if you've ever been a part of a church that's done this poorly, you know that quickly assumptions can be made. Quickly rumors can take place. And I'm not interested in that. And if you have questions and you don't think I'm giving you the whole story, you can come talk to me. And I'll tell you the exact same thing that I'm telling you now. You need to know that our families still love each other. We are working our hardest right now as families to protect our friendship over a job, over a ministry assignment. And what you've heard is the truth. It's extremely uncomfortable as leaders when you 
put yourself in a, when you are put in a place of leadership, when you're put in a kind of in a public role, it's really hard to be vulnerable. Think if, if I were to ask each and every one of you what your weaknesses are, it might be difficult for you to stand here and to air your weaknesses. We like to talk about our strengths, but rarely do we talk about our weaknesses. And Paul has been vulnerable. He's been open to this. He may not even agree with all of the things that I'm addressing, but he's been open and willing to do whatever uh, work that needs to be done to address these things in his life. We've not asked them to step back from their faith community, although we have released him from staff. We have not asked them to step away from the church. Uh, but I will tell you that Paul and Alicia have said that their family are going to take some time for the foreseeable future. And I don't blame them. I, I, I understand, like, this is, this is difficult enough. And, and, and although I, I hope that we all can recognize that we, are, we love each other, we care about each other, it doesn't mean that this isn't painful. We don't know if that's forever. We hope it's not, but we don't know. We're navigating this day by day, week by week. But I love that family. So what does this mean? Well, for next gen, this means that in the interim, uh, Kelly and I will be overseeing the next gen ministry uh, for probably about, for at least a couple of months, uh, recognizing that... um, We've not really had a lot of time with the leadership of NextGen, with the students of NextGen, uh, and the parents. And so um, our hope is over the next couple of months is to cultivate deeper relationships among that team and get to know them well. Uh, I don't have anyone in place as a replacement. Uh, We're wanting to spend some time praying and hearing from the Lord on what's next for LifeHouse. I know this, our philosophy of ministry isn't changing. We still believe in this concept of cradle to college, and we believe that God wants to create a generational pipeline that no child is lost for the kingdom of God. If you have a next-gen student, or if you have a student maybe that's in the sixth grade in the way that's going into next-gen, and you have questions about what the future looks like. If you have questions about this announcement or for me, I want to invite you to come back today at five o'clock. Uh, we're going to, Kelly and I will be here uh, along with some of the leaders and, and we're going to do our best to answer your questions to, to the knowledge at which we have. And, and for those questions that we can't answer, we will tell you, we don't have answers to those questions. Uh, I had a question this last week, are we still doing summer camp? Yeah, we, yes, we are still doing summer camp. So what should your response be? As someone who is a member of this faith community, as someone who loves the Godin family, what what should your response be? And it's just simply love. Love. (laughs) Love them. Love them well. Pray for them. I, I know you love Paul, Alicia, and the kids, and this has nothing to do with the family. We love them. They are still brothers and sisters. They deserve love and respect. I'd also ask you to pray 
we got decisions that are going to have to be made in regard to the leadership of next gen and and what that all looks like. I'm Kelly and I certainly are going to need prayer as we oversee that and and uh, recruit the help of the leaders to to continue to run next gen. Uh, we just need prayer, and they need prayer as they navigate this as a, as a family, as friends. We just need prayer. I don't know how to transition the next thing. I just, I told my wife, I said, I've been trying to figure out how do I, how do I navigate this? How do I do this? And, and for some who, who don't know Paul and Alicia all that well, uh, this, this probably is like, we'll just move on with service. <laughs> and, and, uh, I had somebody say, well, I've, I, you know, I've had to let people go in, in my line of work. And, and I said, well, have you been friends for 25 years? <laughs> and usually the answer is no. It's hard. And it's okay to press into uncomfortability. It's okay to acknowledge human emotions. It's okay to acknowledge sadness and uncertainty and all of these things that are a part of our normal everyday life. And it's also okay to move forward and trust the Lord in all of this. So I'm going to pray. I'm actually going to invite the worship team to come. We didn't do this for service, but Kelly was like, well, you know, how do we, how do we go into a worship song? Uh, and I said, well, we're going to kind of do a reprise of the, the new song she just introduced of who is this king or, or uh, his name is Jesus. And and we, we may not know what the future holds for the Godin family. We may not know what the future holds for LifeHouse and NextGen Ministry. But over the past 15 years of being uh, a leader in this church, I have recognized that the only answers that I have is Jesus. This is his church. Jesus is still Lord over the Godin family. He loves them. The answer for, for what's next is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And there is no one else that we should be submitting our authority or our plans or our, our future to other than the name of Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to stand. Actually, before you stand, just stay seated. We're going to have the ushers come. I'm going to receive our offering.